0: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. We are officially, officially, there's no A in officially. (laughs) Anyway, before I go on a weird tangent about how I pronounce words, uh, we're officially, officially, at episode 26 of this legendary franchise of a podcast. But before I begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously No Copyright Music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that, with me being a broke college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Go subscribe to them, no copyright music. Welcome to episode 26. The past couple weeks have been a whirlwind in terms of star power on the show, going back to episode 23, which featured 16-time NHRA Funny Car Champion John Force. In episode 24, I spoke with IndyCar Radio's Ryan Marine about the 2021 IndyCar season. Then last week, I sat down with 2019 Indy 500 winner Simon Pagenaud. If you guys thought that lineup was stacked, well, I'd like to officially say that today's guest might blow your mind even more. The first man to ever win seven championships in NASCAR history, and the only driver to ever win 200 NASCAR Cup Series races in his career joins the show. That man is none other than the king himself, Richard Petty. You know him by his signature feathered hat and sunglasses, and of course, his appearance as Mr. The King in Disney Pixar's Cars movie. Richard and I talk about a number of topics, and any fan of sports can appreciate the success but humble approach that the King has to his NASCAR career. Enough with the intro, let's hear what this royal guest has to say. Sit back, relax, grab your favorite snack, and enjoy this legendary episode with the King, Richard Petty. All
1: right, let's see what we got today here, guys.
0: Okay. Uh, what have you been up to with the pandemic and all this craziness going on?
1: Well, really, really uh, stayed home more than anything else. Uh, can't go to the races now or don't go to the races because uh, of all the limitations and stuff that they have at the racetrack. So if you, I go to the racetrack and they put me in a bubble and, you know, they put the drivers in a bubble, they put the crews in a bubble, they put the car owners in a bubble and you can't associate with anybody. So, you know, I stay home, watch it. And uh, we got all the electronic stuff set up at the house where I can communicate back and forth with them and, Uh, you know, listen to find out what's going on. So uh, it's almost like being there, but uh, you want to be there because you want to be around the people and just, you know, be be friendly with everybody. You know, let let them know what's going on.
0: Right. (laughs) And I I always ask all of my guests this. What's a question that you're surprised you haven't been asked before just throughout your entire career?
1: I don't know if there's any question that's never been asked. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to figure, I've been doing this uh, I've been around racing since I since for 70 years, ever since NASCAR started. I went to the very first Cup race they had in Charlotte in 1949, and I was like 11 years old. And I've been going ever since, except with the the disease deal they got going around now. Then that that stopped me from going to the tracks.
0: And he mentioned just with being around the sport for so many years, um, just how has NASCAR evolved as a whole? And I'm sure there have been times where you there's been some things that you haven't really liked, but you've had to kind of adapt to.
1: Well, there's different segments of NASCAR, Uh, you know, it started out and it was strictly a stock deal. And, you know, it wasn't really a very much professional deal. Uh, That was 49 and 50. And then people said, okay, you know, we can you know, be racers and make a living out of this. So, you know, <clears throat> then it got a little bit more professional from the drivers and owners and stuff and mechanic Uh and you know, then the car started being modified uh from strictly stock, you know, started putting, you know, bigger motors and bigger <clears throat> bigger wheels and tires and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so it just it it grew. Okay. It's really sort of like planting a seed. And the thing kept growing, and uh, you know then along in the fifties uh, late fifties and stuff, the factories got involved, so that took us from really way back you know try to advance us to write smart uh, then as time progressed uh, we got sponsorships uh, you know people started putting sponsorships in uh, you know r j r got in and uh, sponsored the whole circuit, so we went from running 45, 50 races a year, back to like 30, 35, something like that. And they're all with bigger races. So then they, then we got TV. And then we started going from, from that standpoint, it got bigger uh, with, with a TV deal, sponsorship and stuff. And then uh, you had a lot of, then you had business people coming in. Uh, you know, billionaires coming in, buying race teams, stuff like that so the price went up on it so now uh, we have a full-bore race car and it's you got computers everywhere uh, you got more engineers uh working on the computer than you have mechanics working on the race car so it's just went into a completely different um uh, bill it's a business now it's not not really a sport uh from from the way it's run from that standpoint uh, fans can still look at it as a sport, but I think the people that's in, inside the deal, uh, the sportsmanship's kind of went out of it. Now it's strictly a business situation for the guys working on the car, driving the car, uh, owning the car, whatever it is.
0: And you mentioned just—it seemed like there was a lot more leniency back in the '60s and '70s in terms of what was legal. I guess per se, uh, what type of stuff did you guys have? What kind of stuff did you do to? Kind of try and find a competitive advantage during those times.
1: Well, back in the day, okay, uh, you know you had uh, the Woods Boys, uh, had Leonard Wood, you had uh, Bud Moore, uh, you had Junior Johnson, uh, you had Holman and Moody, uh, you had the Petty crowd, and there was no such thing as computer or anything. That the uh, the driver come in and said, "Okay, we need this," uh, you know, we need that. Then the mechanics would try to make it work. And you didn't have all the racing parts that you can just buy now over the counter and put on a race car. And, uh, there were a lot of strictly stock parts. So if you broke one, then you improved it and you never broke it again. So that's the reason it went from just stock car to, to strictly race car. And, you know, over a period of time, these were the, the mainstays of racing. They were not wasn't sponsorships or nothing like that. The people lived off the purse and, uh, the situation was that everybody had their, their garages was in the back door. Or, you know, they, they they pushed the tractor out and pushed the race car in. And, and that's the way everybody done it. So it was all seeded the bridges deal until uh, the money came in. And then when the money people come in, they pushed that part of it out. And NASCAR had to go along with it in, in order to try to keep up with the trend of time. They couldn't We couldn't operate like we did in 1950. You can't do that in 2020. So everything has to change uh, according to what the uh, environment is around.
0: And you mentioned just going up through the years. um, These days, there's a lot of drivers that are doing all this fitness stuff and just eating right and all this other stuff. (laughs) Back in the day, uh, just how how would you prepare for a weekend or just a season? Well, you know, uh
1: back in the day okay uh the drivers uh they they weren't concerned about uh eating right sleeping right whatever you know a lot of them were party people anyway but uh you know it nobody did it so nobody nobody had to do it to to keep up with what was going on but you know you had uh, the guys worked on the car at the race at, at home built the car they were the pit crew You didn't have a spatial pit crew or any of that kind of stuff. So you had a group of people that worked on the car and they stayed with the car all the way through till you run a race and then you brought it home, worked on it again. And, but the the drivers, uh, they were just two or three of them that really worked on their car. You mean like Bobby Allison, you know, I I worked on mine a little bit. When Junior was running, he was working on his. Most of the time these guys just came in, drove the car and went home. And uh, so, it was just, it's just a different world, man. You, you can't even, it's not like comparing apples and apples. It's, it's, it's apples and grapefruit, you know what I mean? It's, that, it's, it's changed that much.
0: And um, just as the competition continued to ramp up throughout the years, having to drive against guys like Dale Earnhardt, Bobby Allison, Cale Yarborough, uh, how did you have to, or how did you stay on top of the competition to try and stay ahead of them? Well, sometimes you didn't, you know. We 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 done
1: we done pretty good. We was down here in Level Cross, North Carolina. Uh nobody around, all of the deal. Uh had crew chief Dale Emmon, who'd been with me all the years. Had my brother Maurice, uh, he was building the engines. We done everything. We built the cars here, we done the whole thing. We didn't go outside uh and, and do a lot of stuff, uh, bring stuff in. We made our own stuff right here. And uh so from that standpoint, we were as competitive as what these guys was because they was working in their backyard too. So they didn't have the millions of dollars behind them to, to do the uh, electronic deals. And, uh, and and that was before that all that happened. So basically everybody was uh, playing out of the same book. You know, and you had the book and then you looked at the book and said, well, you know, this is not cheating, but it's kind of pushing the, the envelope, you know what I mean, and then sometimes you push it a little bit too far. But uh, but NASCAR now under their rules and regulations, uh, you know, uh, there's <laughs> you can't even hardly fudge on the way the way the situation is. So from <clears throat> from that standpoint, uh, I think the cars are probably more even than they've ever been.
0: And he mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, your crew chief, longtime crew chief Dale Edmund, what made you what made the chemistry so just like flawless for you guys? It almost seemed like.
1: Well, it was a family deal. Dale was a cousin. I grew up with him. Uh, you know, when we was young, we used to go to the swimming hole, go swimming in the creek, race our bicycles around, went to high school together, played football together, dated together. Uh, and then my brother was right here with us. OK. And so you wound up being a family. My dad, my dad sort of run the show. My mother kept the books and kept us all straight. Uh, you know, I had my cousin working on the race car, uh, my brother working on the engines. I was right there. And we all lived within a quarter of a mile of each other. So racing was all we did. We, we didn't have a, a lot of outside activities. Uh, you didn't have all the TVs and all the computers and stuff to play with. Uh, so racing was, was our game. And we we played it you know, 24 hours a day, basically, uh, you go home, you think about it, you come back and you might make a change or something like that. But uh, all of us were on the same page and that team stayed together for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So uh, you, you really didn't have to talk to each other because you knew what the other guy was thinking. And if one, one said something, then everybody backed them up. So uh, it was just a real close knit operation that, that made it work for us.
0: And what type of lessons did you learn throughout the course of your career that you still hold close to you today?
1: (laughs) You know, there's a bunch of them, according according to what kind of situation you're talking about. Is that life, is that racing or whatever? Uh, You know, it was always kind of deal that I looked at things and say, okay, you know, forget what happened yesterday, except by learning from, it. you know, do the best you can now. And hope for the best in the future. So uh, the basic deal is, you know, trying to do better than what you what you've been doing, you know. And on the other hand, if you treat people right, then in the long run, the majority of people will treat you right, and then you'll you'll come out on top, and the people you work with will come out on top.
0: I'm going to have to write those down on my wall or something. Now those are great quotes, um, <laughs> but. I've always loved the uh, the 1970 Superbird uh, with the big wing on the back. How did, yeah. Were those any different from just the regular stock car at the time? Did they handle any better or worse?
1: Oh, yeah. it, it, was, uh, it was the first time they really went into uh, aerodynamics. You know what I mean? And uh, the way they had the wing and the spoilers and stuff on the rear of the car, it was almost impossible to spin the car out because we would get plumbed sideways and then that wing and stuff would catch it and bring it back. And, uh, you know, the... The big deal is the car was designed to go straight. And the big trouble we had was turning the thing, you know, getting the thing to turn when you got to the end of the straightaway. But it was just a super race car and it was just good on super speedways. It was so big a car you couldn't run it on a half mile or you know, a lot of times it'd be close when you run mile tracks because they were they were small. And uh so the super speedways, Daytona, Talladega, Charlotte, you know, uh they they were the car to beat, uh, whether it was uh, a Plymouth Superbird or a Dodge Daytona. Uh, the wing cars, you know, they they had it over everybody. They uh, at that time and Chrysler was just the uh, the head of the deal. They had the big Hemi in the engine, so far as the engines concerned. So uh, they really outclassed the field.
0: And uh, just where would you say the the seventy uh, Superbird ranks on your favorite cars to race? Would you say that was one of your favorites, or was there a different one?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate. We've, <laughs> I guess we drove every kind of car except a Studebaker and a Volkswagen, you know, and was fortunate enough to win races with all of them. Uh, and the Superbird, like I say, was a, a super race car, but it was not a good race car for all kinds of racetracks. Probably uh, the 72, 73, 4 Dodge. Was probably the best overall race car. It was good on short tracks. It was good on super speedways, good road course, Uh, and we we ran it four or five years, so we really got to know the car, and uh, so we really liked that car. But then you go back to '67, uh, you won 27 races with the same race car. I mean, you know, and you can't throw that one out. Uh, You know, so uh, it's really hard to say. Different segments of my career uh, was. Whatever, whatever car I was in, to me, that was the best car for that particular time.
0: And you mentioned the 27 uh, races that you won. Uh, the, I believe you had 27 wins in a season. How <laughs> That's unfathomable these days. Uh, just, what went into, like, a season like that where you win 27 out of 40-something races?
1: I, I think all the stars lined up, okay? <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't – I don't think we was doing anything different. You know what I mean? I mean, we won 10 races in a row. You're lucky to run 10 races and not have trouble. You know, of course, we had some trouble in a couple of the races, but the other people had more trouble than we did. And, and at that particular time, of um, our racing deal was, you know, you run a 400-mile race or a 100-mile race or a 500-mile race. The big deal was to get to the end of the race, you know what I mean, because the cars were not all race cars. they were so much stock stuff on So you had a lot of blown engines or broke axles and, you know, just broke wheels or whatever it was. And so the deal of just finishing that many races in a row uh, was quite a feat. And uh, so we just we just hit on a, I guess, a lucky streak. We were doing everything right and everybody else was doing everything wrong. And uh, it just it just worked out.
0: You're in an exclusive list with Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Jimmy Johnson as the only seven-time champions in NASCAR. Uh, Just as you watch those two drivers follow in your footsteps, what did you see from them that just kind of made them so special in their own right?
1: You know, uh, you got to figure, I won seven championships. I won won it under four or five different ways to count points. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I, I don't know. It's the way they count points now, whether I'd won the championship or not. So they changed the way they do championship points and stuff like that. So, you know, <clears throat> all you can do is compare Earnhardt in his era or Jimmy Johnson in his era or Richard Petty in his era. You can't compare them against each other because circumstances, uh, economies, uh, you know, er- everything was so much different. So it was like, a different era and a different way of racing and a different way of, of uh, environments. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> that's just the way it was. And, uh, you know, we're just lucky that we was one of the seven, one of the ones that won seven of them. you
0: have been in the sport for a number of years. Um, you know, you are able to get into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2010 in the inaugural year, just how much of that mean to just your family overall, just being able to be those first ones to get into the hall of fame?
1: Well, you know, <clears throat> I guess we're fortunate there also that, uh, you know, again, I was at the very first race they had. So I grew up with NASCAR. Okay. I grew up with a fan France family as they changed rules, as the dad went away and the son came in to, to take over. Uh, same way as my dad was running the show and I came in and, you know, started doing the driving part of it. And so uh, I guess if nothing else, I got in the hall of fame just cause I was there as long as anybody else, but uh, it, it was a great, a great deal. Uh, I think it's really been a, a good deal for NASCAR because, you know, <clears throat> at the time we'd been around like 60 years or something. So we was, been around our sport long enough to have a hall of fame. You know, if you've just been 10 or 15 years uh, in a business, it's kind of how you can't have a hall of fame, but you had a lot of the older people like my dad, you know, uh, junior Johnson, uh, fireball Roberts, Curtis Turner. You had these guys from the old time school uh, that a lot of people now don't know about. That's, what's good about the, the hall of fame. It brings these guys back home because if it hadn't been for them, there wouldn't have been no Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon uh, doing what they're doing today.
0: And going back to 1984, your 200th win, uh, at Daytona, what do you remember about that day?
1: (laughs) I don't know. You know, just, uh, it was just, uh, the icing on the cake, I guess, you know, we'd won the 199th race at, uh, dover delaware and then we ran a couple of races and didn't win okay you know and you just felt like it was coming 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 uh everything was just it just worked out for us that day you know uh kill we kind of called kill kind of sleeping he he knew he had the best car uh, he just waited too long to do his deal <laughs> you know but he can see that after the fact but uh we were just fortunate enough that uh, the car ran good. We got by with some squeaking things on the car to be able to, to race with Kale. And, uh, you know, we'd run off and left everybody, but then, you know, the president of the United States going to be there. Well, that was a big deal till you get in the race car and you say, you know, you, that that's the feathers thing from your mind. And you run the race. You ain't thinking about the president coming in an airplane or coming up and being anything like that. So, uh, You know, it was kind of a deal. They they said before the race, you know, uh, whoever wins the race, stop on the racetrack and go up to the announcer's booth and, you know, see the president. Well, you know, (laughs) I come down pit road. They said, you know, get out on the racetrack. Are you supposed to go upstairs? So, you know, the big deal was that we won. We won won it on the last green flag lap uh, in front of the president of the United States on July the 4th, you know, Hollywood wouldn't even buy this picture, you know.
0: <laughs> I know afterwards you had your chick- K- Kentucky fried chicken with uh, the Washington. president.
1: <laughs> yeah, we got the, and that was a good deal. They, they closed up the garage area and let the crews and their families, uh, owners, uh, people in NASCAR all come in and be with the president of the United States. I mean, you know, you have a picnic on July the 4th with the president of the United States. That's, that's a pretty big deal, you know, and uh, so uh, it, it, it just it just it just worked out really. Uh, it couldn't have been better for him, uh, you know. I look back and I say, okay, we got him on the sports page; he got us on the front page. So, <laughs> you know, it was a good day for both of us, or whole country, I hope.
0: It's a pretty good swap overall, and you can't get any more American than Kentucky Fried Chicken, NASCAR, and the President. So got <laughs> it. A yeah. uh, What's what what's the What's been the most fulfilling and rewarding part of your career? Do I now? Uh, what's been the most fulfilling and rewarding part of your career? Just being here.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, running for 30, 32 years, uh, having all the accidents, breaking your neck, was, uh, you know broke about two-thirds of the bones in my body, I guess, but they just didn't have the safety features and stuff that we have today. You know what I mean? So, you know, you drove hurt. you done all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just really surviving that many years and still, you know, being up, get up in the morning, walking around, not hurting. Uh, you know, everything still works. Can't hear it too good can maybe can't see too good like I used to, but other than that, everything's uh, is going along. So, uh, fairly good health, and uh, so I guess you just thank the good Lord that He got brought you through all this stuff, and you, you're still here, babe, being able to talk to people.
0: You're still able to make such an impact on uh, so many people's lives. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But you, final two questions, you hired Eric Drones to, to uh, drive the 43 car this season. Uh, what do you see in him that will help propel Richard Petty Motorsports back to just the top of NASCAR? Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, uh, it's been a long time since we've had anybody in the car that has won races, won cup races. He's won a couple of cup races. Uh, and an opportunity to be able to get somebody that has won races where Bubba never won a cup race. Uh So we think we're going forward with that. Uh, And, you know, we're we're looking basically next year, they're changing the cars. It's going to be a completely different situation all this kind of stuff. And we we feel like that uh, Eric has got the experience in different kinds of cars, different circumstances, that he'll be able to to help us transfer into the new new season. Uh, Hopefully he can do good this year. We feel like our car... Is better than what we've been doing this year or this past year. But you, you never know. So he's going to be able to tell us. And he's he's looking at it because he's been in some winning cars. So he can come and help us, uh, you know, make the car a little bit better. Then maybe from that standpoint, we can learn from him. Then he can learn from us of different things that we're doing. So the combination we think will work out. It's going to take a little while for the crew chief and, and him to get together uh, and understand, you know, when the car's loose, how loose is loose or how bad is pushing, uh, you know, what do they need to do with the car. So, so far it's, it's worked out pretty good. Uh, we've had a couple of good races, a couple of bad races, but, you know, it's one of those deals where, you know, we've just run five races in the season. So uh, we've got plenty of room to improve and we've got plenty of time to improve also.
0: He's definitely been trending in the right direction. That's for sure. Um, and final question: You were able to play the king in the Cars movie back in 2006. Uh, what was what was that whole experience like? Well, basically, uh,
1: there's more more people know me from Cars movie than to do all the races I ever won. You know, and and what's been good about it is that uh, you picked up kids from two years old, four years old, ten years old. You know what I mean? They don't know Richard Petty, but they know Mr. the King. And, you know, we got a, a museum here at uh, Level Cross at Petty's Garage. And, uh, you know, the kids will come in, and we got the Superbird and uh, Miss Linda's car sitting in the back. They come in and see that. They just go right by the race cars, trophies. You know, they go back and look at, at Mr. the King. So, uh, again, there's so many – that that's a good – a good way for us to go to the next generation and get them interested in cup racing. So the movie has been a, a, a sideline deal, but I think it's really turned on a lot of the kids that wouldn't normally ever see a cup race. They don't sit down and watch it, but now their dad or mother, or, you know, cousin or something can say, hey, you know, they're doing this in real time, not just in movies. And so, uh, I, I think it's been a big plus for, for all of us.
0: I know it's always been one of my favorite movies and <laughs>
1: always good. It's always cool. It's probably, what was you, that? Grew up, you grew up with it then, right? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. We, you know, we went to uh, California a couple of different times and even then the voiceovers and stuff. So, uh, you know, we, we got to know the guys out there that worked on the deal and, uh, got to be buddies with them. So, uh, they was big race fans, so that, that's how it really got started. Uh, you know, La- John Lasseter, he was the one that kind of got it up with Pixar. And uh, so, you know, we go to California. He still comes to the races in California. So that 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 made it easier for me to talk to him or him, him to talk to the racers because he'd been around them some.
0: And he made the perfect choice with the 70 uh, Superbird, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Couldn't have a um, the
1: best car to do it with, yeah.
0: Yeah, (laughs) well, that's all the questions I have. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, uh, hopefully you continue to stay healthy. Okay, buddy. Have a good week, okay? You too. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed this legendary episode of Behind the Catch Fence with special guest Richard Petty. It was an unbelievable experience being able to hear his vantage point of how NASCAR was when it was just beginning to evolve in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It takes a lot for me to get starstruck, but I'll be honest, guys—I—I I, I couldn't help but feel a little bit, just kind of like, "Whoa!" And just had to pinch myself a little bit when I just saw Petty's stoic, iconic look that showed up on the video call. Uh, but needless to say, this will be an experience engraved in my mind for life. I'd like to thank Richard Petty Motorsports Director of Communications, Courtney Weber, and Petty's Executive Assistant, Jody Meeks, for making this all possible. I'd also like to thank Mr. Petty for once again coming on to the podcast. We're just about out of time for today's episode, so look out for more interviews and content over the next couple weeks. Before I go, make sure to follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram, at Behind Catch. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you guys later.